0: I have a question for you this morning. Have any of you ever felt like a failure in life? You don't have to raise your hand unless you're willing to, just but if we had hands go up, everybody should raise both hands, right? If we're being honest. Have any of you ever felt like you were a disappointment to others? Maybe um, disappointment in what you did, disappointment in relationships, disappointment in choices you made, disappointment in your career, maybe you were a disappointment to yourself? At times, you know, it reminds me of the guy I heard about, and he said, uh, I heard about him, and uh, he was somebody who, he complained all the time, and things just weren't going right in life, just one right after another, and he was having another day of complaining to God, and he said, Lord, you know, everything is going wrong in my life, nothing is right, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and, and, you know, my dog's not even happy with me, and I lost my job, and my wife left me, and, and I'm having financial troubles, and I'm having health troubles, and Lord, everything is just going wrong. Lord, why me? And all of a sudden, he heard a voice from heaven say, well, John, something about you just ticks me off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. That didn't really happen. We all know God wouldn't do that, right? Totally kidding. But Sometimes we think that's what God is thinking, don't we? When everything is going wrong in our life, but no, that's absolutely not true. And so the good news is even if you feel like you failed yourself in life, feel, feel like you failed God, failed others, I want you to know today that God does not see you as a failure. God sees you as valuable, God sees you as precious, God sees you as so important to His plan and to His kingdom. And to the future, in fact, God looks at us and I think about um, a master sculptor and how they can look at a piece of marble and they don't just see a big chunk of rock, do they? They see what they are are creating in their mind of what it, that marble is going to be turned into. It's kind of like it was said years ago that someone came up to Michelangelo and said to him, Uh, over one of his creations that he made, how did you do that? And he said, well, when I looked at the marble, he said, I just, I wanted to um, release the angel that I saw inside, and I just worked at the rock and chipped away the rock until I released the angel that was inside it. And that's exactly the way God thinks about each and every one of you. When he looks at us, you know, everyone around us might just see a big hunk of rock and just think, oh, they just look like dirt. And people maybe have even said that to you before. You're worthless. You have no value. They may have said that to you, but you know what? God does not see us like that. He sees us like Michelangelo saw that chunk of marble. To everyone else, we may just be a piece of rock, but to God, we are a masterpiece that is waiting to be unwrapped. We are a masterpiece that is waiting to be unfolded, and that's the way he sees every single one of us. Uh, Sean and I have been doing a series for the last few weeks called Welcome Home, and it's been a relationship series. And uh, today, I wanted to uh, expound on the Welcome Home series, but I'm going to do that in a little bit different way. Uh, Our last three weeks have been talking about relationships, and if you haven't been able to be a part of that, I encourage you to go back online and listen to it. You won't want to miss it. It's great relationship teaching, and uh, uh, so that was more about our relationship with others. But today, I want to focus more on God's relationship with us, and more than that, I want to focus on how valuable we are to God. In how God looks at us. Because the one thing about relationships, everything that Sean and I have preached for the last three weeks has been great for building relationships. But there's one foundational truth to everything we've preached. If you don't understand how much God values you and how much he treasures you, you will not be able to treasure those around you effectively. And so understanding how much God loves you is the key in having successful relationships. Before you can do every, anything that we've taught you in the last three weeks, you need to understand this principle of how valuable you are to God. And in all reality, I believe even most Christians don't even comprehend slightly how, how valuable they are to God. Even those who have been serving God a long time, I think we still have no idea. And we really aren't going to fully understand it until we get to heaven. Do you realize that? And see how amazing heaven is. Because heaven is going to give us a full picture of everything that God has prepared for us because of his love for us. And so when we get to heaven, we'll have that full picture. But here on earth, we don't fully have that yet. In John 10.10, it tells us Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly. And one of the things I believe Satan wants to steal from all of us the most is our confidence. He wants to steal the truth from our hearts that we are valuable to God. Now think about Jesus for a moment. Satan knew who Jesus was. He knew he was the Son of God. And what Satan did, first of all, was he went and he tried to tempt Jesus to bow down to him. And when Jesus would not do that, after attempt after attempt after attempt, when Jesus would not do that, Satan departed from him, the Bible tells us, uh, to wait for more opportune time. But really what Satan did at that moment is he changed his strategy. He thought, if I can't get Jesus to submit to me and bow down to my ways, then what the devil decided to do was that he was going to try to destroy Jesus' confidence of who he really was. And you know what? That's what the devil is still trying to do to all of us today. He's trying to destroy our confidence so we won't believe who God has created us to be and we won't fulfill God's purpose for our life. And then we won't be the blessing to everyone around us that we're called to be. You think about Jesus and you think about all the ways the devil tried to devalue him in his life, even through people very close to him. If you read the Bible, you find stories of where Jesus' own human brothers mocked him and mocked his ministry, and did not take him seriously. His very own brothers. In Isaiah 53, it tells us that most people did not esteem Jesus in his life. If you think about when Jesus was sitting down for dinner at the man's house, and we're told that the woman who had been a harlot came in, and she poured costly oil on his feet and anointed him, do you realize it was his very own disciples, his closest friends, led by Judas Iscariot, of course, who looked at this oil being poured on Jesus' feet and said, what a waste. This should have been given, this money, this should have been sold and the money given to the poor. And yet Jesus said, what this woman has done will be remembered in history. Why? Why are we still talking about that woman who poured oil on his feet today? Is that she honored the things of God. She honored Jesus, the Son of God. And you know, that kind of thing still happens today all the time. People complain about uh, church buildings being nice. And say, oh, that church shouldn't have spent that much money on having that nice building. Do you know what? It's, it's not about the nice building to God. It's about the souls that get saved in that building. And God knows that there are a lot of people that won't come to a building unless it is nice. And I don't mean that in a bad way. But one thing I've seen in, um, in the church world, and I'm just going to address this for a moment. This wasn't in my plan. But a lot of times the church is all about ministering to the poor and getting them saved. And, and they look down on rich people. And, and they scoff at rich people and think, Phew. you know, and, and let me ask you something. Are there rich people that are going to hell? Yes. And yet a lot of the church just wants to minister to the poor and they don't want to minister to the wealthy. Well, what about them? I remember when we lived in Fort Worth, I had a hairstylist. I drove across town to go to her salon. Her salon was in one of the wealthiest parts of Dallas-Fort Worth area. And one day I was sitting there talking to her and she had all of these uh, ministry uh, CDs lined up across her shelf in her beauty shop. And I said, what do you have all those for? And she said, Amy, most of my clients are wives of millionaires, millionaire businessmen. And she said, they are some of the most unhappy people I've ever met in my life. They sit home and they drink all day. A lot of them are are alcoholics. And she said, they drink all day and they're miserable. Their husband works 80 plus hours a week and just focuses on his business, wants nothing to do with his wife, just tries to keep her happy with the money they have. And she said, they are so miserable, they are so lonely. And she said, I don't really think of myself as a hairstylist. She said, I look at myself as a minister to these women. And wherever you are in life, whatever place you are, you are there. You may think you're there for a secular position, a secular calling, but you are there to be a minister of God and to share his love with the people around you because sometimes they won't say anything of the hurts they're going on until you pray for an opportunity. Lord, open the door for me to be able to witness and share your love with those around me. And when you pray for those opportunities, God will give them to you. He will give them to you if we ask for them. And so sometimes we we remember the poor hurting, but we forget about the wealthy hurting. And living in a community like Rochester that is a very wealthy community compared to surrounding regions, we can't forget about the wealthy that don't know Jesus. It's important that we minister to the poor that don't know Jesus, but we have to remember both, and God will hold us accountable for both. So don't ever forget that. There, there are some people in here that needed to hear that. Uh, maybe some of you who are just working in the medical community, sometimes, I'll just add this, sometimes when someone is of a very high intelligence level, people are as in, afraid to witness to them. And I, this was not in my notes, but this is for somebody here today, so I'm going to say it. Um, some of you maybe have heard of Andrew Womack, he's a minister at, near Colorado Springs, Colorado. And Andrew was about to buy land in Colorado Springs to build this ministry on. And he said in his prayer time, the Holy Spirit told him, Stop, don't do that. That's not the land I have for you. So he went back into prayer. And very shortly, he was connected supernaturally with a family that told him that they had land that was, I don't remember how many acres. How many? About 160 acres uh, just further up in the mountains in another town uh, close by to Colorado Springs. And they had this 160 acres. And they said, our father died. And he was a very wealthy businessman. Very, very wealthy businessman. And he had all of this land undeveloped up in this city. Who can tell me the city it's in? I've been there. I should know. Woodland Park. Thank you. And... I remember because you drive from Colorado Springs up to Woodland Park, and you go up uh, 2,000 feet in altitude. Yes, I'm here this morning, everybody. I'm here. (laughs) 2,000 feet in altitude. I'm just remembering that drive up there, and by the time you get up to the top your head, is just feeling this pressure because you just went up that in 30 minutes. So anyway, why am I saying all this? Let me get to the point of the story. So... (laughs) There's this 160 acres in Woodland Park, and the family tells Andrew, our father died. He had been a wealthy atheist businessman all of his life, didn't believe in God. And uh, on his deathbed, the week before he died, his nurse led him to the Lord. And they said, we had, he had family members who were Christians. And they said, we have tried to witness to him all of our lives long. And he would have nothing to do with God. Angry. Just wouldn't let us say a word. But all of a sudden, this little woman, who was his bedside nurse in the last weeks of his life, who I, I believe had a, her two-year um, nursing degree, And and from a very, very small neighborhood, just not someone with his experience or everything that he has, just this woman who was loving on him, caring for him in the end of his life, she led him to Jesus. And in the last week or two of his life, he called his family in and he said, I need to make some changes in my will. He said, that 160 acres that I have in the mountains, he said, I that has to be sold for such and such such price, and it was a very low price that he offered it for. He said it has to be sold for this price to a ministry that will have a Bible college on it. And Brother Andrew connected with his family, and they said, is your ministry going to have a Bible college? And he said, well, yes, it is. And they said, we will sell it to you for this price. And he got that 160 acres that had like a huge house on it. That was the only thing built on it. Had this huge house on it, 160 acres for less than what he was going to pay for that. I believe it was seven acres in Colorado Springs. That's the power of God. But I just want to say that's the power of someone who will utilize their occupation to be a witness for Christ. And look at how that changed the scope of the world and all the people that are uh, becoming uh, followers of Jesus and learning about Jesus on that land now in, color, in the Colorado Springs area. So let's go back to Jesus. You know, this woman poured the oil on his feet, and his disciples, starting with Judas, said that should have been sold and given to the poor. So basically they were saying, Jesus, you just don't have value. That shouldn't have been used for you. And then you think of the end of Jesus's life, and at the end of his life it says that when Uh, Judas was going to betray Jesus. He he did so for the bribe of 30 silver coins, which was a very small amount of money. And it was prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus, when he came, would be betrayed for 30 silver coins. And then that they would be thrown out by the person who took that bribe. And that's exactly what happened. uh, Judas, you know, got the 30 coins and then he realized afterwards what he had done and threw them out. But what was happening was Satan was constantly trying to devalue Jesus, to to ruin his confidence. And that's exactly his strategy for each one of us. Satan works overtime in our lives to try to cause us to mess up or to try to cause people to do ungodly things to us or problems to happen. And he's tempting us to do these things. And you know the funny thing is when he um, does get someone to mess up, then he comes right behind and says, You're such a loser. Look what you did. You know, it's this cycle he tries to create of tempting us. And then if someone does give in, just saying all these accusing words at us to make us feel more worthless, to try to get us in this vicious cycle of just feeling like losers, feeling like failures. But that's not who God created you to be. And I want to remind you of that today. 1 Peter 1 18 and 19. If we can have that up on the screens, I want to ask you if you'd read this with me, please, because I believe as you read it, it it'll sink more into your heart. Are you ready? Read, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. So the truth is, you have great value to God, no matter what you've done in your past, no matter what's going on, you have great value to God. So much so that God could not redeem you with money, he could only redeem you with the blood of Jesus Christ. And you know what, so many times in life, we find our value in our possessions, or our position, or our looks. Uh, all of these things. But you know what? If we find our value in those things, we will end up having an identity crisis at some point in our life. Because you know what? Those are all things that can be ripped out from under us. You know, when you're 100, you're not going to look the same as you did at 20. I'm sorry, but <laughs> Botox can only do so much. <laughs> you know, and uh, what about you have that esteemed position right now, and what about when you retire? You know and you don't have that position anymore are you are you all of a sudden going to have an identity crisis because you aren't the Someone says, I'll be a golfer. <laughs> that change your identity, huh? uh, But are, are you going to have an identity crisis because of that? We can't find our identity in earthly things. In fact, Luke sixteen fifteen, Jesus said to them, you make yourselves look good in front of people, but God knows what is really in your hearts. The things that are important to people are worth nothing to God. So we need to remember that God does not see our value in what we look like or what position we have or what we own. Even though humans often judge by that, God does not. When we fail, it doesn't mean we're a failure. Failure is the place our mind tries to go to, but it is not who we are, my friend. It is not who we are. God still has a bright future for us no matter what has happened in our past, even no matter what's going on in our present, God has a bright future for you. Let's talk about worth for a minute. Um, when someone is trying to determine the worth of something, what do they do with a house, jewelry, whatever it is? They do a what? They do an appraisal. And what happens in an appraisal for housing? How do they determine the value of the house? They compare it to others that have been sold in that market recently. Exactly. And so because of that, um, what they're determining is if people are willing to pay that price in that market, that that's that's what buyers, people who are looking for homes, are willing to pay, then that's what that house is worth, correct? Okay, so we establish worth by what potential buyers are willing to pay. Is that correct? All right, let's think about cars for a moment. There is a car that was created uh, in, between the years of 2013 and 2015, it in, it, in uh, tests when they raced the car against the Ferrari and the Porsche, it just slightly, by a minute fraction of a second, outperformed both of those cars. And it's called the McLaren P1. Anyone ever heard of it? If not, there's a picture on the screen for you. The McLaren P1 They only made 375 of these cars intentionally because they wanted it to be a very exclusive car. Now, 127 of these cars were sold to the American market. With this car, it um, went on the market in October 2013 for sale. And by the end of November 2013, before most of them had even been made, It had all all 375 units had already sold out. This car retailed at $1.3 million. And and since you can't get your hands on them anymore, there's a waiting list if anyone wants to sell theirs. (laughs) And they're still selling for close to that price. Now, I want to ask you, if someone came up to this car and said, That's not worth $1.3 million. That's just not worth it. That's ridiculous. Is that true? Actually, it's not because people are willing to pay that. In fact, people are still lined up willing to part with over $1 million to get that car. So it may not be worth it to that person who says that's not worth it. It's not worth it to that person, but to the people who understand his value and enjoy race cars and understand the value of speed and (laughs) that type of thing, it's worth it to them, isn't it? Because it's not the person who just uh, doesn't have a million in the bank that stands there saying, that's not worth it. They're not the one who determines the value, are they? It's the ones who have the money who are in the market for cars like that that determine its value, correct? So I want to ask you today, what about your worth? What about your value? Who and what determines your value? Your creator determines your value, and his redemption of you determines your value. Because God was in the, one, the one who was in the market to buy us back. After Satan deceived Adam and Eve and man fell into sin, God created us and then he was the one in the market to buy us back. And so he is the only one who has the true and genuine ability to determine our worth according to the way things are appraised. And so for that reason... God determined to him, having mankind with him, eternity and wanting us as his eternal family was so valuable to him that he was willing to pay everything for us. And he determined that there is no amount of money that he could put on your soul. The national debt times a thousand would not be enough to pay for your soul. Did you ever think about that? There is no amount of money and I don't think most of us comprehend this in our mind or in our hearts. There is no amount of money that can be put on your soul in God's eyes. You are so valuable to him. Turn to your neighbor for a moment and say, "My friend, you are more valuable than a McLaren you are more valuable than a McLaren P1." Okay, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 in the NCV version says, You know that in the past you were living in a worthless way, a way passed down from the people who lived before you, but you were saved from that useless life. You were bought not with something that ruins like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ who was like a pure and perfect lamb. God values you so much that he prepared things in advance for you to be able to win in life. What has he done for us to to help us win? Let's talk about that for a moment. According to John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God actually loves you so much that he loves you unconditionally. He loved you before you were ever born. He loves you even after you've sinned. God loves you unconditionally, not based on your works, but because he's a good God. According to Jeremiah 29.11, God has a good plan and a good purpose that he has already prepared for your life. And the more you seek him, the more he can reveal that purpose to you. According to Colossians 1.12, God has pre-qualified you to receive an inheritance from him. According to Ephesians 1.5, God has predestined you to adoption as sons and daughters because it is his good pleasure to be with you forever. According to Romans 8.30, God has predestined you, he's called you, he's justified you, and he's glorified you. There's great depth in that. In John 14.27, God has made his peace available to you if you will just ask him for it. According to John 14.2 and 3, God is preparing a, a beautiful place for you in heaven so that you can be with him eternally. Once you ask Jesus into your heart, because God wants you, each and every one of you, is his permanent family. That's exciting. God wants to be with you eternally so he can lavish his goodness on you, the Bible tells us. So we need to start thinking more about how valuable we are to him. Let's talk about failure for a moment. Failure is not who we are once we accept Jesus Christ into our hearts. Would you agree? Colossians 1, 21 through 23 says, at one time you were separated from God. You were his enemies in your minds and the evil things you did were against God. But now God has made you his friends again. That's good news. He did this through Christ's death in the body so that he might bring you into God's presence as his people who are holy with no wrong and with nothing which God can judge you guilty. This will happen if you continue strong and sure in your faith. You must not be uh, moved away from the hope brought to you by the good news that you heard. So in other words, we must keep looking to the blood of Jesus. Not turn away from him once we've received him, but keep looking to the blood of Jesus. Keep our eyes focused on him. keep our eyes focused on him. You know, sometimes people think they get into heaven because of doing good deeds. Have you ever heard that before? But you know what? According to Ephesians 2:8, good deeds do not get us into heaven. It is only through the blood of Jesus and accepting his forgiveness that we get into heaven. But good deeds we will be rewarded for when we get to heaven. So that's good news. God will have more reward for you because of doing good deeds in heaven, and that will be amazing. But we need to keep our trust in God. I want you to think about something. Once we understand that we're forgiven, we can stop looking at ourselves as a failure. And we can also put our trust totally in God that all things are working together for our good. According to Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, if we've received Jesus into our life and it seems like things are failing around us, Sometimes what we need to do, I should say all the time what we need to do, is put our trust in him. And just take that area and keep seeking God and say, Lord, I trust you. I don't understand why this is happening or this is happening or why it seemed this failure happened. But, Lord, I'm going to put my trust in you. Because sometimes things happen because uh, everyone has a free will. And sometimes people do things against us that are just uh, workers of the devil, you could say just trying to cause problems in our lives. But then sometimes there are things happening that maybe we have a disappointment that we really wanted something in life. Maybe singles, there was someone in your life that you really wanted to marry and they decided not to. Or maybe uh, there was a a certain job or career you really wanted and it just hasn't happened. And in those situations, what do you do with that? You know God is a loving God. You know he has a good plan for your life. You know you're a treasure. So why, as we're walking out life as believers, do we experience some of these things? We aren't getting this thing that we really wanted. God, this has happened for everyone else that's my age. They're all married. Why am I not married yet? Or all my friends from college, they all have this great job. Why don't I have a great job yet? And this frustration happens, and it's the devil trying to steal your confidence is what it is. And you just have to put your faith and your trust in the Lord. So I'm going to talk about failure for just a moment. And I'm going to read to you something out of a a book. Uh, It's a great book uh, by Andy Andrews called Mastering the Seven Decisions that Determine Personal Success. Andy Andrews is a great, great author. He is actually the son of a Baptist pastor. Both of his parents died within one year of each other when he was, I believe, 18. And he ended up homeless living under a pier in the Gulf Coast and just angry at God, hated everything, hated everyone, and just was saying, why me, God, why me? And this miserable life, had no family, his parents had no insurance, he had nothing. And there was someone, in fact, he has a book called The Noticer that is in a, one of my favorite books. And also The Noticer Returns. Um, but he, he, it's a fictional book that he embellished a little bit. But The Noticer is actually pretty much a story of his life of what happened to him. And in this, um, Andy Andrews has now become an advisor to uh, many five-star generals in the military, several presidents. Uh, He's invited to speak to Congress. He's invited by many people um, to come and and get perspective from because he has such an amazing life. And so in this book, Andy wrote to uh, a number of movie stars and famous people and asked them if they would send him a letter about a time in their life where they had a failure. And and so he published a number of those letters in here, and one is by Norman Schwarzkopf, General of the U.S. Army. And I want to read you part of that letter, because I think this answers questions of, there are so many of us at times that we think, God, why did you not do this for me? And I hope this helps answer some of your questions. It says, Dear Andy, when I received your invitation to share a time of discouragement in my life, my immediate concern was how to select only one. The years have presented me with a series of crossroads which have often take me, taken me down a different path than I might have chosen. It is, of course, understood that if this were a perfect world, I would not be writing this letter at all. My childhood would have been easy, my military career without detours, and there would simply be no story to tell. And as you know, that is not the case. In December 1972, the Army was considering officers in my year group for early promotion to full colonel. Routine promotions were in order two years down the road, but after having gotten feelers from various generals who wanted me for a colonel's job, I thought I had a pretty good chance. No one had a right to expect an early promotion. However, being promoted early boosted an officer's reputation, and I'd secretly let myself look forward to it. As I walked into the war college on a Monday morning in January, I saw several of my peers patting themselves on the back. At that moment, I knew my name was not on the list. I realized that I would have another shot at early promotion the following winter, but this was the first time in my career when I was clearly no longer at the front of the pack. Friends offered condolences, which made me feel worse, as well as theories as to why I had been bypassed. I was, a, I was disappointed, confused, and shaken. The following November, I was nominated by the Army to serve as a military aide to Vice President Gerald Ford. I was honored and excited to be chosen out of all the lieutenant colonels in the Army. This was a prestigious job that would leave me with powerful connections in the event I decided to retire. As the selection process went on, I got my hopes up. I was interviewed by the Vice President's assistant for national security affairs and even sat down with the Vice President himself. I thought we really hit it off. In early January, 1974, two events happened almost simultaneously. First, the Army released its list for early promotion to Colonel, and to my shock, again, I had not been selected. Then, a few days later, I was called and told I had not been selected to work with Vice President Gerald Ford. In addition to the discouragement I felt, my frustration level was at an all-time high. At this point, I must tell you two of the most important lessons I learned from those and other challenges I have faced. Number one, don't dwell on disappointment. Determine to do your best anyway. And number two, we don't always know what's best. Um, it goes on with several paragraphs talking about how he finally did become colonel and a number of the assignments he did. And then it goes on to say, Looking back at my military career, I can see now that every struggle I endured pointed me toward my destiny in the Gulf War. The challenges we face in certain situations sometimes hold a purpose beyond our understanding at the time. We don't always know what's best. The tough times in my life often dealt with being put in positions not of my choosing, but the ultimate result is now a matter of history. I am frequently asked if I miss the Army. I suppose the answer would have to be yes, but what I miss the most is the camaraderie of those who have suffered great adversity. This is the bond that links all old soldiers. Not surprisingly, it is also the bond that links successful people. Success without adversity is not only empty, it is not possible. Sincerely, Norman Schwarzkopf, General, U.S. Army. So, I want you to think about that. This man who created history for America, leading in the Gulf War, he said that he had disappointment after disappointment, and positions he thought were the right thing, but what he ended up ultimately having, were the things that he needed in preparation for his ultimate destiny of the Gulf War. And you think about that. Sometimes we think we know what we need, but we have to trust God. Sometimes it's painful in those moments, and I know that. But when it's a disappointment of something you've been wanting for a while, don't let the devil steal your confidence. Don't let the devil tell you that God values these other people more than he values you. It's absolutely not true. Look at what Norman Schwarzkopf did in his life. God is not looking at at just a short period of time in our life saying, oh, how can I make them happy, right, for this two years of their life? I want them to be happy right now. Sometimes happiness is not the best choice for us, as odd as that sounds. Sometimes we need to go through certain training to get to our ultimate destiny where we are going to help God's kingdom and the most people, and ultimately, think about how much honor General Schwarzkopf received for what he did in that war. And, and if, he had, if he could have seen his whole life and everything going on there, he would have been willing to go through all that. But the fact of life is we have to go through that blindly trusting God. And God will, the Bible says God will reveal bits and pieces to us. But we aren't going to get to see that whole big picture like God sees it. We just have to trust in those moments. So I want you to just remember, maybe disappointments, uh, things that have been going on, are what God is using to prepare us for greatness. Because if we always remember how much he treasures us, we will trust him. We will trust that He has a plan for our life. Psalm thirty-one, nineteen says, "Lord, how wonderful You are! You have stored up so many good things for us, like a treasure chest heaped up and spilling over with blessings. All of those who honor for all of those who honor and worship You, everybody knows what You can do for those who turn and hide themselves in You." Romans eight, thirty-two tells us, "He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him freely?" Give us all things. So the question comes, who am I? What am I? What is my worth? You may ask yourself at times. People may look at you and tell you you're not worth much or tell you you've disappointed them, but you and I both know the truth. You are extremely valuable to God. Now I want you to think about something one more time. God says, that there is no amount of money in the earth that can pay the price for your soul. He says the only thing that can pay the price for your soul is the blood of Jesus Christ, his son. So in God's eyes, your worth is that of Jesus Christ. Your worth is that of Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that. Your worth is that of Jesus Christ. God wanted to spend eternity with you so much that he gave his son. And everything the Bible says about who you are in Jesus Christ, that's your possession. So possess it. God tells you who you are. In fact, in our uh, first book we wrote, Marriage Dreams Do Come True, we have a page in there of I Am Confessions from the Bible of everything God says you are. God says you are more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. God says you can do all things through Christ who loves you. God says you're the head and not the tail. God says you're above, only, and never beneath. Don't let the devil steal your confidence. Don't let the devil tell you anything other than what God says you are. You may want to go through the Bible and look for everything that it says you are in Jesus Christ and write those down and then declare those over yourself every day because you will believe what you say more than you believe what others say. Did you know that? And so you need to be speaking that over yourself. So I want to remind you today as we close that you are exactly who God says you are. You are a child of the Most High God. You are his beloved. You are his treasure, and he paid everything for you. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads, please? Father, we come to you this morning, and we're thankful, Lord. We're thankful for Jesus. We praise you and thank you for all the good that you are provided for us through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we look to you this morning. Lord, I pray for everyone at the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray that those who have not seen their value before, that they would take these words that I have spoken this morning. And Lord, that you would penetrate their hearts and that they would not be able to get this out of their mind, that you say they're valuable. That you say they're valuable and you're the only one that matters. Your opinion's the only one that counts, Lord. And I want to ask with every head bowed and every eye closed, If you have never asked Jesus into your heart and you're ready to do that today because you know he loves you and you know he has a good plan for you now. If you've never asked Jesus into your heart or maybe you have years ago but you haven't been living your life for him, I just want to ask you if you would just go ahead and slip up your hand before God and say, Lord, that's me. Because the Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If that's you and you want to get your life right with Jesus today, just slip up your hand before him. And then you can put it right back down. Anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else? Let's all put our hand on our heart and pray together. Dear Jesus, come into my heart. I receive you as my Lord, my Savior, and my best friend. Thank you for forgiving me. I ask you to take my life and do something with it for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you all. You are amazing and God loves you so much.